Bless you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Let's grab our seats together. Thank you so much, worship team. For the last uh, several weeks, as we've been in this series on unity, we've been praying for a, a local church in the Mount Pleasant area. And so I'd love for us to do that right now. Could we throw up a slide? This is uh, Central Michigan uh, Christian Church, and this is Adam and Katie and their uh, 17 children. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five children. And uh, they're just around the corner from us on Lincoln, and uh, they do a great job. And Adam's just a wonderful fella. He's actually been employed as a staff member of that church for many, many years, but just in recent months, he's become the, the senior pastor of that church. And he's just a lovely guy. He was actually here at the men's uh, wild game dinner this week, and I bump into him all the time when our kids play parks and rec, soccer, and all that stuff together. Such a great guy. And we just want to say that we love this local church, and we support them, and we, right now we want to encourage them and pray for them and affirm them. And please know this, like during... Uh, in between the weeks, I've been in touch with all of these leaderships and all these different churches just to say, hey, Mount Pleasant Community Church is sending on the message that we love you guys and we care for you guys and we're praying for you this Sunday. So let's go ahead and just ask the Lord to bless them. So Father, thank you so much for Adam and Katie and for their five children. Thank you so much for this local church. And we pray kingdom success and blessing over this ministry. We pray that their church would just explode with new people and faces not for the sake of numbers, but so that many people could come to know Jesus Christ. And then they would grow in their faith and mature in their faith. And then that they would be able to disciple other people. And you would get all of the honor and the glory. I pray for their team and their leadership uh, that they would be encouraged. And in particular for Adam in this new role as senior pastor. That he would uh, just hear from you and be just brimming over with God vision for them as a local church. We pray that they would have an amazing impact in this community. And we stand beside them, and we stand with them, and we are for them, and we love them, and we pray that you would just open up the heavens and pour out such favor and blessings over them as a local church. God, we lift them up before you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Great to pray for other churches. Well, most importantly, happy St. Patrick's Day. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks. This is a good day, right? Come on, I don't often wear a green tie to church. This is not like me at all. This is a good day. This is my day. This is a really good day. This is a national holiday any day of the week in, in Ireland. The uh, government shuts down, the school shut down, huge party for at least a week, maybe longer, and it's a whole lot of fun. So listen, this American fellow says, well, I'm going to go off to Europe for my European vacation. And he lands in Italy, and he says, I want to see the Vatican. And he, he goes to the Vatican, and he's shocked. He sees a phone booth. Who, I mean, where are their phone booths anymore, right? But this one isn't your average phone booth. It's made out of pure gold. It's a true story, by the way. So um, he's made of pure gold, and he's like, what is this? It's gold. It's glimmering in the sun. So he goes up to a local Italian fellow. He says, excuse me, what, what am I looking at? It's a phone made out of gold, a phone booth. And the Italian man answers him and says, oh, this is, you can call God. This is a direct line to heaven. No problem. He's like, are you serious? Yeah, this is the Vatican. This is, you can call God. He says, wow, how much is a phone call? It's 10 million euro. Whoa. Of course, he didn't have 10 million euro. Who has 10 million euro? He says, wow, well, thanks for letting me know. So he goes on with the rest of his lovely getaway, and he, he arrives in jolly old London, England. And he's having a great time going around, seeing all the sights. And behold, he bumps into another golden phone booth. And he's like, oh, this has to be what I saw in, in Rome. He goes up to a local fellow. He says, excuse me, you know, is this the phone? I, I saw this in, in Italy. Is this the phone? And the guy says, yep, direct line to heaven, right from here. He says, 
How much is a phone call to talk to God? He says, it's 10 million pounds. Oh, for goodness sake. Well, thanks very much. You know, he doesn't know who has 10 million pounds. So last leg of his journey, he lands in Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> and he gets out of the airport and there's gold phones everywhere. They're just all over the place. And he's like, wow, I mean, there's only one in London. There's only one in Rome. This is incredible. So he goes over to a phone. He pulls a, a local fellow. He says, excuse me, you know, is this the phone to call God in heaven? He's like, yeah, I saw one in Rome. I saw one in London. He says, well, you know, how much is the phone call to speak to God? He says, it's 25 cents. It's 25 cents. It was 10 million euro in Italy, and it was 10 million pounds in England. Why is it 25 cents? He says, sure, isn't it a local call from here? All right, all right, all right, bad joke. Okay, we're supposed to be preaching the Bible. Let's get into the Bible. I've been holding on that one for a long time. When does Paddy's Day land on a Sunday? All right, welcome to the last week of our series one, where we've been looking at this biblical principle of uh, unity. Now, even though I just told a joke, we know that the goal of the pulpit is obviously it's not entertainment, or for a lot of other people, it can be like, oh, I want to listen to a sermon so that I can get information. I want to leave knowing something that I didn't know. And that can certainly be the case, but I don't even think it's to just give you information. I don't think the goal of the pulpit certainly is not to, you ever, you know, get that like, well, I, this is what I want to hear. The New Testament actually calls it tickling your ear. And the goal of the pulpit is never to tickle people's ears. In other words, that someone would stand up here and just say the things that you want to hear. Only say the things that make you feel validated or good. Or, there's got to be more to it than that. The goal of the preaching of God's word is to equip you for life. That's what this is right here and now. It's for you to be able to roll up your sleeves and put tools in your hand. God tools, not just for life, but for the God life. For the kingdom of God life and for his purposes that he has for you. And so over the last few weeks, what we've looked at, we've looked in week number one, what it means to really protect the bride of Christ. This is this image that we get in the book of Revelations that describes this gathering right here, you and I, the church, that we would never sling mud at the bride of Christ. We would never, ever, ever speak ill or try to assault the bride of Christ in any way. That's somebody else's bride, and we must protect her as best we can. We looked at Psalm 133, and there was a great verb in there where it says, when brothers and sisters live together in unity, it says God actually commands a blessing. Who's going to get in the way of that? Who's going to usurp a commandment from God? So when you in your life, you step into unity, just watch out for favor and blessings from God going to come upon you. In week number two, we actually looked at the idea of how on earth are we supposed to love people who are very difficult to love? You know, and there's a, sometimes a sense in which we are attracted to some people because there's something just lovable about them. You know those people who are easy to love. They have qualities about them. They have success or intelligence or they're beautiful or they're smart. And you're like... I just want to be around that person, but then there's another kind of love entirely, and we call this bestowed worth. This idea that this is what God has actually done for us. When we were at our most unlovable, he said, I will love you, not for anything that I get to gain from you or benefit from you. And then last week, we actually looked at the origins of disunity. We looked at some scriptures in the Old Testament, which talked about Lucifer himself. The cunning, unbelievable cunning of this angel of light that turned into an angel of darkness. What kind of mastery of lies 
would you have to be able to do to fulfill this? To take one third of the angels of life and somehow to convince them to depart from paradise and the very glory of the presence of God, to somehow persuade them to, to move into darkness was a better thing. My goodness me. And we should know with no naivety that this unity is exactly what Satan has on the menu for you today. He wants nothing more than for your life to be littered with a trail of broken relationships and fractured relationships around your life. And my hope and my prayer is that you're really maybe starting to lean into this a little bit. To actually see that unity is not a small thing in the word of God. That it is so central to the heart of God. That if you call yourself a follower of Christ, how you conduct yourself matters. What you say on Facebook, it matters. How you treat people matters. How you deal and respond and react to difficult people on a normal day with difficult circumstances, it matters because we are champions of unity and we need God's help with that. This final week, we are going to look at what I believe is the ultimate scripture in the, in the New Testament that deals with, and everybody knows this, what do you do when you have a problem with another person? Everyone in this room has endured conflict. It was either your fault or their fault or both of your fault. And most often, it's both of your fault. You said something, you did something, or you, you should have and you didn't, or they did something, and everybody here knows what conflict is like. So I'm going to give you a quick pop quiz to see if you are the type of person who is inclined towards the drama and the tension and the conflict in your life, okay? Pop quiz, question number one. When driving, how often do you use your horn? Number one, rarely if ever, two, as needed, at least once a day, or three, it is the most used part of my car. Oh my goodness. Question number two, at a restaurant, how often do you complain about the food? One, never. Two, only if it's cold or there's too many bugs in it. Or three, I love this one regularly, and I go out to my car and honk the horn until I get it right. Last one, question three. While waiting in an express checkout line at the supermarket, be honest. One, you meditate quietly and visualize world peace. You count to see if anybody has more than 12 items. Who's done it? Or number three, you threaten anyone who looks as if they're going to use a coupon. Okay, the point of this is, ladies and gentlemen, you're either coming out of conflict, you are in conflict, or you're going into conflict. It is an inevitable, inescapable part of your life. So don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked. Oh my goodness, can you believe they said this? This is our life. Of course there's going to be conflict. And we dish it out as much as I think sometimes we receive it. And this is what Satan has on the menu for every one of you. He hates unity. He does not want you to experience harmony and unity in your life. He wants nothing more for you to embrace conflict and drama to lose your cool, to, for your joy and your peace to just begin to uh, evaporate in your life, where you become embroiled in relationship breakdown that has an ill effect on your marriage, on your friendships, on your colleagues, on your neighbors, on your dorm, on, on your life and where you find yourself. Look at this quote. Communities need tension if they're to grow and deepen. That one caught me by surprise. Tensions come from conflicts. This is the one that really got me. Attention or difficulty can signal the approach of a new grace of God. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't really think about conflict that way. When I see conflict, when I can smell it coming, I'm like, oh, here we go again. 
here's this person, or I'm getting upset, and I know this is going to get worse, and it's spinning out of control. Something inside of me goes just like, red alert, red alert, let's get rid of this. Let's stop it. Let's somehow get, get it removed from my life. I don't want to endure this anymore. But this is a completely different attitude. Imagine if we were to reframe our understanding on conflict, because it is inevitable. It's going to come. And we were to say, oh, here it comes. I can see it. I can smell it. Now I wonder what new wave of grace is going to pour into my life instead of embracing anger and frustration and tears and being upset and gossip and how am I going to handle that and all of the angst of that and say, no, this is God's grace and I wonder what wave of grace is going to hit the person that I'm in conflict with. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? So what does God have to say about interpersonal relationships when they go south? Matthew chapter 18, very direct. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Genius. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, You've won them over. That is so simple. A child could follow that, couldn't they? Our problem with that scripture is not that we don't theologically understand it. There are certain scriptures in the Bible where I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord, what does that mean? You get into the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, you're like, wow, that is complicated. That's hard to understand. This is not hard to understand. It's not that we don't theologically understand it. It's that we're unwilling to commit ourselves to it. So I want to I kind of break up the scripture, if you don't mind. Number one, acknowledge conflict. If you are alive, you will be in conflict with people. Do not be surprised or shocked by that for any reason. The question is, how will you manage that conflict? Number two, own your responsibility. Jesus says, if you messed up, and we all mess up, don't we? If you sinned, if you wronged somebody, you're going to take the first step. And as hard as that is, because nobody really likes doing that, do they? As hard as that is, look at what else Jesus says. He says, it's not that you've wronged, even if you've been the person who was wronged. You're the victim. You are innocent. You still are to take the first step. But I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't want to do that. They should be the one to take the first step, right? No, not if you're a champion of unity as we see it laid out in the Word of God. Why do I have to go to that person? Well, how do I do that? Number three, approach. Don't avoid the person that you are in conflict with. You ever done that? You ever said, I'm just not going to look at them. When I see them, I'm going to walk the other way. I'm not having that conversation. God says, no, I want you to make an approach. Jesus is actually telling you to take action. Move on this. Don't let resentment fester. And that's what will happen if you don't take action. You'll replay the tape in your mind. You'll rethink it. You'll re you will refeel it so that the feelings, the emotion becomes stronger and stronger. Don't allow bitterness to take root. And actually, if we're going to be really honest today, I think many of us enjoy that feeling. You've heard of the term a pity party, right? Oh, poor me. Look at what they did. Look at what they said. That wasn't right. That wasn't fair. 
I'm so hurt, I'm so wounded, and I don't mean to belittle genuine you know, wounds because they come in life, but sometimes I think we like to play pity party. I want to stay here. I actually want to feel this, and I'm going to keep mulling over this, and I'm going to keep stewing on this. That does you no good. It is toxic for your soul. Approaching, it's a huge step. Now, certainly it's very important to know how to approach another person. But I want to give you permission. You may not be able to do that well initially. You may try to approach somebody and you might stumble and stutter and stammer over your words. But I would just say to you today, don't let that stop you. Certainly it's important to, to use as much tact and skill and wisdom as possible. But if you wait until you can do that perfectly, guess what's never going to happen? You'll never make the approach. You'll never talk to them. Doing it flawlessly is not the goal. The main thing is to go to the person. Avoidance kills unity. And you already know this. You've already experienced this in your life where somebody had a problem with you and you actually were oblivious. And they never told you. But they harbored this because they were avoiding having the conversation, never making the approach. And then 10 years later, they exploded on you. You were like, I had no idea. And that person just got toxic inside. Avoidance causes resentment to fester inside of you. And that is not for followers of Christ. So go to the person. If you've done something wrong or you said something wrong or you failed to do what you ought to have done, go to the person. And even if it's not you, go to the person when they did something wrong or they, did, they said something wrong. Jesus is being incredibly practical here. This is not pie-in-the-sky theology. This is very, very simple to understand. Here's the problem. We just don't do it. We just simply don't go into these steps. Well, I don't want to do it. I'd rather just keep the peace, right? I don't say anything. He doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. And we're just, let's just move on, okay? Let's just sweep it under. I didn't grow up in a family where we sat down and had these big old talks and emotions we had a big bust, and then we just get on with it. There's no point in looking at yesterday's problems. That was yesterday. Just move on. Everything is going to be fine. You know what? I can't say it to them, because if I say it to them, I know them. They're going to hold it against me. The, the day that I came to apologize, they'll remind me about that for the rest of my life. There's no way I want to do that. You know what? They're never going to change anyway. They never change. I've never seen them change. This won't make any... You see what I'm doing here? It's pretty easy to come up with all kinds of reasons in just a second why we shouldn't do this. And no, if you want to value unity like the Word of God values unity, like Christ values it, like Matthew 18 values it, where you see bestowed worth in people, where you want to now live in opposition to the father of lies who wants to just have your life just trailing with a kind of dead bodies all around you from fractured relationships... And if you want to treat the bride with respect and dignity, you simply do what Jesus says. You approach. Number four, no third parties. Listen really carefully to this, please. Go directly to the other person involved. I'm going to say it again. Go directly to the other person involved involved. You know why I'm taking my time with this, right? Because we don't do it. You don't need to get your buddies around you for some support. 
You don't need to explain the circumstances to your girlfriend. You don't need to leave some cryptic little message on Facebook about how you're not doing well and everyone wants to know why. You don't need to go to your brother and sister in the Lord for prayer support because you're going to have a difficult conversation and let me tell you all of the juicy details about what they did wrong to me. As a general rule, here's the problem. I don't want to go to the other person. I don't want to. They're the last person that I actually want to go to. But this is what Christ followers do. This is what people who take Jesus' words seriously do. People who have a heart for unity. This is how the church functions. This is actually normal mode of operation for followers of Christ. Sometimes I think we look at the Bible and we're like, well, look at the early church. You know, they didn't have these problems. Au contraire. They had tons of these problems. The Greek-speaking members had a major problem with the Hebrew-speaking members because of the way that widows were being treated. And there was a huge fight in the church. Those who came from a background of Judaism had a major problem problem with the people who came from a Gentile background about what they should or shouldn't have to do, and there was a major problem in the church. Paul and Barnabas, two guys just working hard for the gospel, had such a fight that they actually dissolved their partnership with each other. There's two people in the New Testament, Iotis and Sinchik. Paul actually gives this unbelievably kind commendation to both of them. He's like, man, they were at my side um, uh, um, working for the sake of the gospel. That's what he says. Those two people were so locked in a conflict that later on in the New Testament, Paul says, he's actually pleading with them. He's like, please, would you just agree with each other? And they wouldn't. We think sometimes, oh, they didn't have those problems. That was the ideal launching of the church and everything was perfect. It wasn't the case. The early church was not a place where conflict did not exist. Rather, it was a place where people were committed and accountable to managing that conflict well. And they did. The litmus test of spirituality is not the absence of conflict. You'll never have the absence of conflict. Anyone can do the absence of conflict. That's easy. Conflict will not disappear until we die. The litmus test is how we handle it. Conflict is inevitable. Resentment is optional. Number five. Use sensitivity. So what if it's you? What if you're the one who messed up and you knew you messed up? You know it, it was me. I said something really bad and it was nasty and it came right out and it hurt them. And, and I shouldn't have done that. What do you do? How would you like to be approached if it were you? Do you want somebody wagging your finger in your face, their finger in your face, and barking at you and putting you in your place? And so when you approach somebody, be sensitive. It's, it should come from a place that you actually love them, that you care about them, that you want to see them doing better in life. And there's a sense of respect in your words. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about getting something off your chest. Champions of unity think way bigger than that. It's not your moment to get all of this off you and put them in their place. Number six, direct communication. Now here's the crazy one about number six. Imagine you do step one, two, three, four, and five, right? You acknowledge the conflict, you go directly to them, you don't go to a third party, you use sensitivity. Imagine you did all those things, and now you actually go to have the conversation, and you don't say what you need to say, then all of that other stuff was for nothing. How many times have you actually had a hard conversation with somebody, and you walked away afterwards, and you say, you know what, I think I only said about half of what really should have been said. I, I didn't go there. I, I maybe, maybe you say, I went 90% there, 
But I didn't want to go the last part because, well, I, I, it was too much and I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Somehow we must summon the courage to speak truth. Our, the relationship is already fractured. It's already broken. So I would encourage you, don't avoid the meat of the issue just to spare somebody's feelings. Last one. Aim at reconciliation. That's the goal. That's the grand finale. That is the actual reason behind it all. And this is what Christ wants you to become. Every single person in this room, he wants you to become a peacemaker. A child of God who, yeah, gets wrapped up in drama and workplace problems and marital breakdowns and argument with your next door neighbors and it's conflict and it's words and it's emotional and you get frustrated and angry and all that stuff, but you have the maturity in Christ to battle through that to what end? Well, it actually says it right here. Verse 15, if they listen to you, this is the goal of the whole thing. This is where we're coming to reconciliation. It's not if they listen to you, great, I got to say what I wanted to say. I won the side of the argument. I got to put them in their place. I got to rant and scream at them. That is not the right conclusion. If they listen to you, here's what it says. You have won them over. You've won them. Now, what does that mean? Because it's not, great, I won them to my side of the argument. No, 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 no. To win them over. Let me try to describe it if I can. Here's what I long for every person here today, walking out of this room. I want for you to be able to see disunity coming. Discord, a lack of harmony. You can smell it, you can see it, you're like, oh, I know this situation, I know this person, I know the person, I know the circumstance, here it is again. And for something inside of you to have an actual adverse reaction to just doing that again. Almost like, do you ever hear about people who have a horrible allergic reaction and then they eat it and they actually have to stick a, um, a, a needle, thank you very much, the medicine in their body, like emergency, or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, my throat's gonna close up. I want you to have an emergency reaction to disunity. There it is. It's coming my way. I'm not doing this again. No, I'm going to fight for unity because Jesus Christ has asked me to champion it. I want you, if you would, please, that you would actually leave this place in just a few minutes from now with this newfound, steely determination that when you see disunity in your home, in your church, in your work, amongst your friends, or in your life, that you would be unable to be okay with that. There would be a discontent inside of you. That you would be unable to look at that and sort of shrug your shoulders and say, oh, that's just them being them. Oh, that's life. These things happen. That something inside of you says, no, I'm not okay with that. I guarantee you this. Every person, there are certain sins that you've got on the top shelf. You're like, those are the bad ones. Certain sins where you're like, man, that's, that's outrageous. You're shocked when you find out that somebody you know, sins in a particular way that you don't like. When you hear about a pastor being fired from a church for moral reasons, we all know what that is. It's sex and money. That's what it is. Years ago, particularly like maybe 20 years ago in churches, you know, someone would be caught who goes to the church with a cigarette in their hand and people would be appalled or they had a drink or they saw a particular movie and, and they're just... How can this be? They just have this outrageous reaction to sin. How about this? What if we were appalled by something else? 
What if we were scandalized by this? A deficit of love. What if that got under your skin, that your relationship with a brother or sister, when you see a deficit of love, that something inside of you goes, no, it cannot be that way. What if you were never okay with that? Like ever, ever okay with that? But we're not scandalized by a lack of love. But Jesus is. Love is a supreme value of his. A summary of all of his divine teachings. One word, love. Love God, love people. Therefore, the greatest crimes against the kingdom of God, the greatest crimes are crimes against love. To slander another human being to carry a grudge against somebody who has hurt you, to gossip against somebody, but you never had the conversation. You never did Matthew 18. You didn't talk to them. You never confronted them, but you talked to everyone else about them. To hold resentment in your heart because you are hurt and you are wounded. To decide, no, I'm going to decide against forgiveness because what was done to me, I can forgive you for that, but I can't forgive you for that. That's too bad. To go to a third party, to have a conversation about another person, to speak ill of their character and their reputation and their actions, to pull them down and to be negative and critical and criticize them and hold it against them, to withdraw your love, to to live your life at a distance from other people, or to even worse, to just assault them, to lash out, to wound them, to get back as bad as they got, or maybe worse even, and, and make them hurt more than they hurt you. And yet these behaviors go on all the time, but we are not shocked by them. We'd be more surprised if they actually stopped. What does it mean to win your brother or your sister over? Here's what it is. It is to redirect the relationship back to love. That's it. That's your job. Every day. Any place you go. No matter the environment. If you're a follower of Christ, that's your job. To steer your own heart, to steer their heart back to love. And God says, when I see that in a marriage or at work or with friendships, I'm just going to command favor and blessing over your life. I want that. Okay. That's a lot. What if I do all of that and it doesn't work? You're thinking it, aren't you? What if I do all of that, Pastor Alan, and it gets worse? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter must be established by the testimony or two or three witnesses. Again, it's not rocket science, is it? It's pretty pragmatic stuff. And if the first part doesn't work, here's what you do. You take somebody with you. Can I ask you, who does this stuff? Nobody does this stuff. How many people here, and I know there's new people in our church all the time, all the time, but how many people here, like maybe you've been coming to church for years, maybe even decades, have actually experienced this? Like, it's tiny, if anything at all, that somebody actually went to the trouble of going to you or that you went to somebody else for for the hard conversation, the one-on-one confrontation to point out the fault in them, to bring them before God, to restore them, to win your brother or your sister over, and then imagine this, that you actually did that, which we never do, and then they stiff-arm you. They dig their heels in. They say, no, I'm not listening to you. You're wrong. I'm not repenting. Forget about you. Then that you would actually say, well, I am such a champion of unity, and I 
know what the Word of God says. I'm going to take it to the next step. How many of you have ever then encountered someone knocking on your door, coming with one or two friends, and a surprise look on your face where they say, we're taking it to the next level of Matthew 18? It just doesn't happen. Nobody does this stuff. It's unbelievably practical, but it's hardcore. It is quite a length to go to. And it should reveal to you, I pray it reveals to you in this moment, how seriously God takes this. Like, this is really important to God. And that he's asking you to go to these kinds of lengths. It's not a trivial matter for Christ. You think about it. Why did Jesus come from heaven to earth? He came because of a broken relationship between the Father and you. So what lengths did he go to? He takes this really seriously. He knew what this would cost. It would cost him everything. He knew that all of this was pointing to the cross. Do you see the weight of this for God? I pray that we might carry some of that. So you go back to the person. They're digging their heels in. And now you're bringing one or two godly, mature people with you as a witness. And you're going to confront them about whatever the issue is. Again, you're not putting them in their place. You're not trying to right them, wrong them. You're trying to win your brother or your sister over back to a loving relationship. But what if I do that? Which we never do. What if I even do that? And that doesn't work. And Jesus says, well, I'm really glad you asked. He says, I've actually got another step for you. And let me just pen it out like this if I could. Number one, you go to the person. Number two, you go to the person with a witness. But what if both of those things don't work? And this is what Jesus says. Number three, you go to the person with the church leadership. Now, who does this? Nobody does that. Nobody goes to that length. But Jesus is telling us to go to that length. This is what it says. Verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. And again, what's the motivation? You're not sticking it to them. You're not barking at them. You're not wagging your finger in their face. You're winning your brother and your sister over. Here's the biggest reveal. Here's how you get to see exactly how committed God is to this unity. And this is the context of the church. So what if I go one-on-one -on -one and I meet with them? And I do that. And they dig their heels in. And then what if I do bring a witness and they're still like, take a hike. What if I even go further and I bring it to the church leadership and they address it with them. And they're still saying, no, I will not repent. I will not love. I will not bring this relationship back. Surely we're done now, Jesus, right? I mean, that's a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of steps that we've taken. We've done them all. Surely that's the end of the rope. Well, I'm glad you asked. Nope. We've got one more thing. And this one, I got to be honest with you, when I read it, I was like, this is hard to read. And here's why. Here's what you got to understand. Here's God. It's my bride. You can't sling mud at my bride. You are not supposed to be laying a finger on my bride. Don't do that. And so no, we cannot have people who are a part of the bride in the house of God who are damaging relationships where there's a deficit of love and nobody's scandalized or shocked by that. We just shrug our shoulders at it and then it's addressed with them one-on-one. -on -one. It's addressed with them with witnesses. It's addressed with them with the elders. I mean, this is a lengthy process and they're still unrepentant. 
Don't do that to my bride. I don't want that kind of infection, festering toxicity in the bride of Christ within the house of God. That's my bride. Nobody touches my bride. So there's one more step, and this is hard to read. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. And here it is. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow. How committed is God to unity? And I, got, I, I had to read that a few times. Like, it, God, you've got like a zero tolerance policy for a failure to love and a failure to repair relationships. You've got a zero tolerance policy for that. God is absolutely scandalized by a deficit of love between people. When they're done, I'm out of here. What does it mean to treat a person like a pagan? What does it mean to treat a person like a tax collector? And anyone reading these words in this gospel understood exactly what that meant. Alan, are you telling me that we're supposed to reject a person and withdraw grace from them? Is that what the Bible is saying? Two things, really quick. When I read that statement, to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, it should up the ampage of your commitment to unity and how you conduct yourself in this world and in the house of God and amongst the people of God and those who don't know Christ. It should show you, it should reveal to you how serious God is about love and that there cannot be a deficit of love between brothers and sisters. Secondly, and I find this to be precious, he specifically mentions a pagan and a tax collector. Who's writing these words? Who's penning these words? Anyone know? This is the gospel of Matthew. Anyone know what Matthew did for a living? He was a tax collector. Treat them like a tax collector. How did Jesus treat Matthew the tax collector? The person that nobody touched. He was considered to be an outsider by everybody. There was no circle for him. Well, for Matthew, it was an extension of grace. For Matthew, it was an invitation from Jesus to move from being an outsider to being an insider. I believe the heart of this passage cannot tolerate divisive people within the bride of Christ. Unacceptable. Zero policy, uh, zero tolerance policy. I believe the heart of this passage gives us a very, very simple and practical tool or process to go when conflict comes, and of course it's going to come. This is what you do. And I believe at the heart of this passage, it eventually offers a process whereby there's an opportunity to repent, opportunity to repent, opportunity to repent. And finally, God shows himself faithful even when we are unfaithful. It's a big deal for God, isn't it? I pray it would be a big deal for you and I. Let's stand together and we're going to close this series in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your presence and for your power, for what you've taught us over the last four weeks cannot wait for the new series um, and pray God that you would continue to challenge our hearts and transform us and make us more like Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be shocked and scandalized by a deficit of love. I pray that we would put that top shelf. God, I pray for every marriage in this church today, 
every marriage seated in this room, every marriage outside of this room, every marriage that wasn't even able to make it here today. I pray for every husband. I pray for every wife. Your word says, resist the devil and he will flee. And so God, we take you at your word today. And I pray for husbands and wives who are in a place, perhaps it's just neutral or stagnant, or perhaps it's going south, or perhaps it's been going south for years, God. And I'm asking you in the name of Jesus Christ that you would bring hope and you would bring um, uh, healing and restoration into marriages where husbands and wives would begin to outserve and they would begin to care and communicate well and that the deficit of love would be intolerable. Husbands and wives would take each other by the hands and they would pray and worship and seek your face together, that they would humble themselves. And we take authority in the name of Jesus Christ and we command the enemy, get your hands off these marriages. They belong to Jesus Christ. A covenant was spoken before heaven and earth. God, we pray for every child and parent in this room. Every parent-child relationship and child-parent relationship, whether they are babies or teenagers or whether they are grown-up children, God, we ask you to bring unity. Father, we pray for every workplace scenario with colleagues and neighbors. God, we pray for this church. Oh God, I pray that we would be so wise in how we compose ourselves, that we would leave, excuse me, lead with forgiveness and grace and love, God. Would you please protect us? I pray that we would be shocked. It would be intolerable. We would be scandalized. Our skin would crawl when we see disunity. I pray that we would be powerfully moved to do something about it. I pray that we would commit ourselves to Matthew 18. And I pray that we would never, ever, ever, ever damage the bride of Christ. But we would respect her and pray for her and support her and uphold her and encourage her and love her as best we can, God. God, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for these practical, practical steps for us to take in life, God. Lord, we commit this to you now in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, love you, church. God bless. Have a great Paddy's Day.